right? Okay. It's been a couple months. Um, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, as Nathan said, uh, and Father Nathan said, uh, my name is Nick Davis. I am pursuing ordination in our diocese, the Diocese of the Rocky Mountains. And the hope is, Lord willing, that in a couple of years or soon we'll begin planting an Anglican church in Tucson. Uh, so pray for us, uh, pray for me and my family, and pray that the Lord would both prepare our own hearts and prepare us for what he is calling us to do and that he would open the doors because we can do nothing apart from his strength and his grace. So we'll be in the epistle for today. This is Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 18. I think last time I was with you, I didn't announce the text, so you're probably halfway through the sermon wondering where in the world we are. So I'll make it very clear. We're in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 today. Now as you turn there, let's uh, prepare our hearts with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, the reality of death is always around us. We may not see it physically as much anymore. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but in much of urban uh, planning, cemeteries are now being put outside of city centers rather than in the middle. Uh, we don't walk through the graveyard to get to church anymore. Uh, and advances in science and medicine, as great as they are, uh, have caused or have prolonged death, thankfully, and caused the cure of many of its causes. But death is an ultimate reality that we cannot get away from. And as you get into this time of year, I'm sure the phrase is coming to your mind that two things in life are certain, death and taxes, right? Uh, so indeed, uh, death is all around, even if we don't see it readily. And death uh, even occurs in the tragic death of someone like Kobe Bryant, who, if you're a basketball fan like I am, um, you know, is tragic not just because of who he was, but the fact that his daughter died in a, a helicopter crash with him, seven others. These type of things remind us that no one gets away from death. No one, regardless of their status, is beyond death's grip. And the reality is, that the scope of death naturally reminds us of our fear of death. That sense of dread, of doom, that death uh, is all around and it might come calling for us next or for someone we love. This is truly life's greatest burden and bondage. And even as I'm getting ready to fly this afternoon to our diocese annual gathering and I, for some reason, am more afraid to fly than I used to be, uh, we need to know, all of us need to know, that there is one who has destroyed death and its power. And this is the main idea, the main thing we're going to see in our text today, that Jesus, by his death, has destroyed the power and the reality of death, and therefore he frees us from the fear of death. And so we begin to see this in our first point. 
in verse 14 through 15, the fear of death is destroyed. The first thing this text tells us is that uh, the children share in the flesh and blood, that this is what children are, that this is the children the text is speaking of. We are indeed flesh and blood. This reflects that we are created in the image and likeness of God, that we are his creation, that we are part of that handiwork in the beginning in which he created all things and he looked upon us and declared that it is good. That is the glory we have. Humankind is the crown jewel of God's creation. He states it this way through the psalmist in Psalm 8, verse 5 through 6. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This is the glory in which we were created, flesh and blood. But there is another side to this, of course. There is this sinful side, the side that occurred not in creation, but occurred in the fall of humanity. That we are now created good, yet fallen in sin. And we are, as King David confesses again in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, verse 5, when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, this is the two-part truth of our existence, that we are created in goodness and glory, and yet fallen in sin, shame, and guilt. This is who we are. And you may be wondering what this epistle that we are reading today has to do with the presentation of our Lord in the temple. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus as a young boy coming to the temple and being presented according to the law of Moses? You may wonder what this event in Jesus' life has to do with him being the high priest who destroys death itself. And so there's a couple things. First, this is because this very high priest must be born of a woman, as Galatians 4.4 4 says. You see, for Jesus to ever be the Savior, he must first be Jesus the child. He must, as our text says, partake of the same things. Jesus must, as we will see later on in Hebrews, take on all of our humanity except for our sinful nature in order to be a faithful high priest. And secondly, we see in our gospel text for today that even as a boy, Jesus is set apart for this mission of salvation. Remember the words of Simeon that we heard when he took Jesus up into his arms as a little boy. He said these things in Luke 2, 29-32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and uh, for glory to your people Israel. You see, when Jesus is presented in the temple, we see again what we've seen many times before, that there is not a divide between Jesus and his incarnation and Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who lays down his life for his people. We see that in these texts, in this uh, message, that these things are united, that Jesus 
uh, his incarnation and his death are part of one great act. We even notice this in verse 14. I want to get into a little grammar with you all, so make sure you're awake. But uh, you'll see that simple word there, that, that, that. You see, it's very subtle in English. But in Greek, this word that signals that a purpose is coming. There's the purpose clause, which says what has occurred, and the result clause, which is why this has occurred. So keep those things in your mind. Uh, And you don't need to be good at Greek to know this stuff, by the way, because I'm not that great at Greek, and I see these things all the time. So, uh, because it's a big red flag in the Greek text. But this, that, shows why Jesus took on flesh. It shows why Jesus partook of the same flesh and blood that we are, and it is why it shows us what this purpose is. And it shows us right here in the text. It says, that through death. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. You see, that is the result. That is the reason why Jesus partook of the same things. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death and the devil. Forgive me for reusing a quote that I've already used with you before, but I cannot help but be reminded of these words from the theologian Gerhardus Voss when he writes this, We need God incarnate for redemptive reasons. The whole incarnation with all that pertains to it is one great sacrament of redemption. You see, all of Jesus' life is for our salvation. These words tie uh, together. Jesus being presented in the temple for our salvation, his incarnation and his life as the firstborn Jewish boy and the destruction of the one who has the power of death through his very own death. This is what ties Jesus being the, uh, the little boy presented in the temple together with his work as the high priest on our behalf. You'll notice too that there's a second result from this. And it begins in verse 15. It says that he not only delivers us from the power of the, or the one who has the power of death, but he also delivers us from the fear of death itself. He delivers us from this fear of death that haunts us. The fear of death that haunts you, that keeps you awake at night, tossing and turning, fixating on the phone call from the doctor. The fear of death as you lay on your deathbed, whether with loved ones or even alone. The fear of death knowing that your sin has earned death. You see, the fear of death from addiction. The fear of death from being filled with hate. The fear of death for not loving God or His people. The fear of death for lying and cheating others. The fear of death for unfaithfulness. The fear of death for abuse, whether given or received. You see, we are all enslaved by the fear of death. And the good news is that Jesus has taken on our flesh and blood, that he might deliver us from the one who has the power of death and the fear of death in his very death. That is the good news of what Jesus has done. Now we ask, who is this for? 
And we see this in verse 16. And this is our second point, that Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. You may wonder, if you read the text closely, what is the significance of this verse? I mean, it almost seems out of place. Like you could be in verse 15 and read right on to verse 17 and not even skip a beat. And so you may be surprised to read this verse. Why is it there? Well, you see, Abraham is mentioned ten times in the epistle to the Hebrews. And to see his place in the epistle, we must understand the greater context. You see, the central argument of the epistle to the Hebrews is that the old covenant is weak and fading away, and the new covenant is perfect and what uh, will stand forever. And therefore, uh, we see Abraham as being in the midst of this. And we get a snapshot of this in Hebrews 8, verse 1 through 2, and verse 6 through 7, when we see these two covenants contrasted. This, the text says this, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see, Jesus is the high priest who mediates the new covenant. And this new covenant is not a covenant of law, which has the principle of doing and earning, but is a new covenant of grace, which has the principle of Jesus doing and you believing and receiving as a gift. And this covenant of grace is not a New Testament invention, but it goes all the way back to Genesis itself. It goes back to Abraham himself. When we read in Genesis 15, verse 6, and Romans 4, verse 3, that Abraham believed God and it is credited to him as righteousness. So therefore, Abraham becomes the paradigm for new covenant living. You see, life in which God is the one who makes the gospel promises to us Provinces that are backed by God himself. You'll see a theme in Hebrews that God not only makes promises, but he backs them with an oath. Which he does to show because God cannot lie. He is trying to convince us of how strong his promise is. It's almost as if, you know, when you're a kid you say, I double dog dare you. That's the way God promises to us. He promises, and because he is God, he cannot lie, but he even backs it with an oath, which means this, that if he breaks his promise, it literally means the death of God. That is the strength of God's promise. That is the type of assurance that he wants you to have. And that is why one of the central texts in Hebrews regarding Abraham is Hebrews six thirteen through 18, when it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, all of this was to convince you, to convince you beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are the beloved child of God. That is this promise. So that you can know without a doubt, as Galatians 3.29 tells you, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That is what it does. And so Hebrews 6, 19, 20 uh, through 20 continues on with what naturally occurs for us. What does this mean for us? It means we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is what it means to be an heir according to promise. The heir according to the promise of the gospel, the promise of the forgiveness of your sins, of eternal life, all by the death of Christ on the cross. And all of this is received by faith, the faith of Abraham, not by your works. You see, Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. And he helps you, the offspring of Abraham. And he does it. He does it by this very preaching, not because of the strength of the preacher, but because it is his promise. He does it in your baptism, not because of the strength of the one baptizing you, but because his promise is attached to the water. He does it when you take the supper, when you take his body and blood, not because of the strength of the one who gives it to you, but because he has put his word there and promised to be there. You see, Every time you hear his gospel, every time it is given to you in the water, the blood, and the wine, he is promising again that death is defeated, that the fear of death for you is destroyed. That is how he helps you, is by faith. And this naturally leads to our third point, that he helps those who are being tempted. This is verse 17 and 18. You see, Jesus delivers us from the power of death, from the fear of death, from bondage, from slavery. He helps the offspring of Abraham by faith, by the promise and oath. But friends, the rubber meets the road in this, that he does all this for you when you are being tempted. You see, Jesus does not enter into a perfect world or perfect situations. He does not come into clean homes or clean kids, but into the messy, the broken, sin-stained, frustrated, depressed, anxious, disheartened, addicted reality of your life. Jesus does not come to good people who are cleaning themselves up, those who have made themselves godly, but he comes to those who are sinful. He comes to those who are broken. You see, he came into the world in order that... Again, purpose and result. He might be a merciful and faithful high priest. You see, whatever sin you are experiencing, Jesus is not surprised. Because as verse 18 states, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 elaborates on this later on. For we do not have a high priest who is unable 
to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus comes into this world, into the sin and weakness of every moment of your life. Every moment of your life, no matter what your sin, your struggle, whatever it is. And he says to you, he points to the wounds in his hands and his feet. And he says, this will do. This is enough for you. This propitiation of his makes even the worst sinners righteous. Just as 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what Jesus does. And he does it in the midst of your brokenness. You see, this grace of Jesus is not the reward uh, for being good and accomplishment, but it comes to those who are guilty, those who are filled with shame, and those who are filled with sin in the midst of of your broken sinfulness. Paul Zoll, in his book, Grace and Practice, uh, defines grace in this way. He says this, What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. So what does this mean for you? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ is your faithful high priest. He is the one who has fully and finally delivered you from the power of death, from the sting of death, and from the fear of death. And one day when he returns, he will even deliver you from the presence of death. It means that he does all of this for you, not by your works, but by his own work and his promise and oath to you. The promise of your righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life. And it means that because he has been tempted as we are, because he too has taken on flesh, he can pick you up in the midst of your temptation. In the midst of your deepest temptation, your darkness, despair, in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sin, Jesus is and will be forever your faithful and merciful high priest. All of this he does for you, for he has promised it to be so. Amen.